We're going to take our Bibles up again, and we're going to read this time uh, from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Uh, Revelation, uh, in the New Testament, page 1028, 1028, in the, uh, the Black Church Bibles. And it will be good if you can keep that passage open in front of you as uh, we look at this uh, part of this uh, chapter together uh, this morning. Revelation uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 9. We're going to pick up the, uh, the reading in verse 9 of this chapter, reading to the end, uh, end of it. Let's hear God's word together, shall we? I, John, your brother, am partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches of to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Uh, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, uh, the uh, things uh, which you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the gold, seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. So reads uh, God's uh, word. Do keep that passage uh, open in front of you and let us pray. And then uh, we will think of that uh, chapter a little bit more. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, gracious Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and sure. And now we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts might truly be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, 
our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus wins. That is what we're here for today, isn't it? That is why we are here gathered celebrating on Easter Sunday morning. The tomb of the Lord Jesus is gloriously empty as Jesus rises victorious from death. Jesus wins. This morning, I want us just to step back from that first resurrection morning uh, when the women uh, arrived at the empty tomb. Uh, and I want us to use this, this glorious uh, vision that John uh, has here in Revelation chapter 1 to grasp something of the grandeur of the risen, ruling Lord Jesus Christ by unpacking those words there in verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He, Jesus Christ, is the living one. The one who died, the one who was swallowed up by death and the one who through his death swallowed up death itself who is now alive forevermore. Uh, this, this morning, we, along with all Christians, we rejoice that Jesus rose, rose physically, rose bodily, rose victorious from the grave. Our Easter message is Jesus wins. And here, John, in these verses that we've got before us, he paints a picture with images and symbols that reveals what it means for Jesus to win. The glorified, risen, living Lord Jesus, victorious over death, ruling in the midst of his church. John sees this picture, a picture from another world. He sees one, verse 13, like the Son of Man. Sees that the risen Redeemer in all of his glory. And John's response is to fall at his feet in worship. For in this vision, uh, as John stands uh, in the presence of, of the risen, glorified Lord Jesus, he stands in the presence of the one who is God himself. The one who is life himself. Two points this morning. Here's the first point. Uh, the divine identity of the risen Redeemer. See the divine identity of the risen Redeemer. Just, just look again at verse 17. That's where we're going to be focused. Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I am, says Jesus. I am. That is how God revealed himself to Moses Back in Exodus chapter 23, when God appeared in the burning bush in the wilderness before Moses. And, and Moses asked God, uh, uh, when God had said, go back to Egypt, Moses asked, who, who shall I say sent me? The Lord answers, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. God who is God who is being, who is life himself, I am. He is life. 
the first and the last, uh, the one who was already in the beginning, the one who is without end. God of no beginning nor end, through who, whom uh, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah said, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Uh, the God who in the beginning created all things out of nothing. Uh, just uh, look around you, look at the other people, look at the chairs, look at the building. Everything in our world, everything in our cosmos, uh, all of the plants and the, the people, all of the atoms and the air, you and me, all that's living, every inanimate object, they are, aren't they? They exist. Uh, but you, me, the, the, the building, the, uh, uh, the rocks, the mountains, they could also not exist. And that is in contrast to God. God is. He cannot but exist. He, he is uh, the fountain of life, and all life flows and overflows from him. I am, says Jesus, the first and the last and the living one. God, the fountain of life. God who's not dependent upon anything outside of himself. God who doesn't get his life from anyone or anywhere else. The God who cannot but be. Uh, just think of an electrical circuit. Uh, a year back in school, our children did electric, electrical circuits uh, with lights and bulbs and buzzers and fans in an electrical circuit, but all of those components, they lie lifeless and dead. The life of the circuit comes from connecting the battery to everything else. But the battery, it doesn't get its power from somewhere else. No, no, the battery in a circuit is the life of the circuit. It gives life so that the lights glow, so that the buzzers buzz, so that the fans were. John here, he stands in the presence of the God who is life himself, from whom all life comes. And what is vital for us to grasp this morning is John's vision of God is a vision of the person of the, the, the divine redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. John's vision a vision of God it is a vision of the person of the divine redeemer, Jesus Christ. Uh, we say, don't we, uh, that a picture paints a thousand words. You'll probably have uh, used that phrase. Uh, there is truth in pictures, isn't there? Some of the most beautiful uh, truth that we have comes from pictures. Certainly that's the case in the Bible. Think of uh, Jesus described as the, uh, the, the, the lamb who was slain. It's a picture, but there's truth in it. Uh, Jesus, the, the lion of Judah. Picture language, but language which is no less true. And in verses 12 to 16 here, John gives us a glimpse of a picture of this, this glorious God-man, the person of the Lord Jesus, in all of his heavenly glory. And with every stroke painted, we're told something of who he is. A, a divine figure, one like a, a son of man. A language from the Old Testament used to speak of the Lord God himself. 
this vision that John has. A vision of God, yes. A, a vision of God the Son, yes. A, a vision of, of God the Son having taken human nature to himself, yes. But a vision of God the Son having taken human nature to himself, which nature he's now redeemed, now rescued from sin. The glorious person of the divine redeemer. And we need to be clear here. This is not what the risen, glorified Lord Jesus looks like. But this is what he is like. Let me say that again. This is not what the risen, glorified Lord Jesus looks like. Uh, this vision that John has. But it is what he is like. Think back to that first Easter Sunday morning. Mary and the, and the women as they uh, arrive at the empty uh, tomb. Those travellers are, are on the way to Emmaus later that Sunday. The disciples as they're locked in the upper room. Uh, these images in verses uh, 13 to 16. They are not what the glorified physical body of the risen Lord Jesus looked like when he appeared to them. No, he rose from death bodily, physically, not a ghost. His body that had lain in the tomb for three days, uh, that human body raised, transformed, glorious to new resurrection life, the same human body as Jesus had ministered in for three years, now physically seated in the heavenly realms. But we're not to think that verses uh, 13 to 16, they're not a photograph of Jesus's resurrection body. This is a vision. It's a vision painted with symbols. But having said that, this is the same risen Lord Jesus described using imagery to reflect something of the glory of his person, of who he is as the divine redeemer. Let's just quickly look through verses uh, 13 to 16 and see what is said of this uh, one. Verse 13, son of man, that is language Jesus used uh, to describe himself in his earthly ministry. It's a phrase that comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel. In, in Daniel chapter 7, it, it describes a, a majestic, exalted human figure exalted to the point it almost seems as though he, he, he acts and appears like like God himself verse 13 he, he is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest those are priestly garments echoes of the description of how the Old Testament priests were to be clothed robes Often in the Bible, they describe purity. Uh, he, this one wears long robes draped down to his feet. He is covered in purity, a wholly pure, a, a golden sash, one with exalted status. And verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. In our culture, we tend to, to maybe look down with those with white hair, don't we, today? Uh, oh, they're too old. They're, they're past it if you've got white hair. Uh, oh, uh, what good could they be? I'm thankful for any hair. 
but, but, but far different approach in, in many, in, in most of the cultures. Those with white hair, they're, they're, they're the ones who hold the seats of honour. In the Bible, white hair, it, it, it suggests honour, it suggests wisdom. His feet were feet of bronze, immovable, unshakable. His eyes like flames of fire, always in the Bible. Fire refers to cleansing, to purifying. Fire, it consumes, doesn't it? But it also burns away the dross and leaves everything pure on the other side. And his voice, oh, his voice was like the roar of many waters. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His voice, powerful, like a, like, like, like a mighty waterfall. Uh, think of the Niagara Falls. I don't know if anybody's ever been to the Niagara, Niagara Falls. They, uh, they tell me that if you stand at the bottom of the Niagara Falls and, and try to speak to the person next to you, you, you can't hear what they're saying. So powerful is the noise of the water. Uh, but it's not just uh, that uh, his voice is powerful in and of itself. It is powerful in its effect. It's like a sword. It can cut into you. You step back then. Step back from the individual strokes that John paints uh, with his words here. And here is a picture of the risen Redeemer, the exalted Lord Jesus, ruling in purity and power. And John, he responds to this vision in the only rightful way. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Purity and power. We're told uh, in the Old Testament when Daniel has his vision of God in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel faints. In that momentary mountaintop transfiguration of the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, Peter and James and John, they fall on their faces terrified. As Thomas uh, Jesus' disciple, as he finally sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he falls prostrate on the floor. My Lord, my God. Oh, the glory and the majesty, the purity and the power of the Redeemer. I am the first and the last and the living one. I wonder this morning, do we recognise this as the one whom we worship this morning? Is our response to fall before him, the divine redeemer, awesome in purity and power? In the run-up to Easter, I've seen so many pictures, uh, so many images, so many videos, and Jesus is the weary man, uh, the one who's walking around with first-century sandals on his feet, uh, he's, he's so meek, wouldn't hurt a fly. Friend, many today, maybe you, even though you're in church, uh, and you fail to grasp the astounding magnitude of the events of that first Easter, because you fail to see, you will not accept who is at the centre of those events, who it is who's at the centre of reality itself. Grasp who he is and what he says here 
is incredible. Look again at verse 17. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. Can you see how utterly, totally, completely out of place those last two words are? I am the first, I am the last, I'm the one with no beginning, no end. I'm the living one who cannot uh, uh, but be. I died. Last Sunday we considered the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We were told then that he was sorrowful and full of trouble. He said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The divine redeemer, life in himself, taking on our weakness, taking to himself our flesh and blood, who wore our weakness, not as a, a mask, a pretense, so, so that he only looked weak, only appeared to suffer. No, no, he wore our weakness as a cloak wrapped around himself. He took our weakness to himself in order that the divine redeemer might suffer weakness even unto death as one of us for us. He truly was the man of sorrows. Life himself took our creatureliness, took our weakness to himself, that he might bear the curse of our rebellion against him, that he, the living one, might die. Oh, he suffers in weakness in the garden. He suffers in the agony of the weak, frail flesh upon the cross. True weakness. Oh, but make no mistake this morning, friends. It is the gloriously majestic Redeemer. It is the Son of Glory. His power and, and purity veiled. He is the one who suffers as the man of sorrows. The Redeemer made weak that he might suffer for the sin of his people. That he might bear our guilt. Might die forsaken and cursed on a cross. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That, that in his death, death itself might die. And having borne sin's curse, God his Father raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was impossible for death to hold him. Sin's curse defeated by the risen, victorious, exalted Jesus. I died. I died, he says. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Alive forevermore. Not because he is the uh, divine uh, first and last, the living one who cannot die. But now, as the God-man, the Redeemer, who took our weakness to himself, uh, alive forevermore, so that having conquered death in his death, he now rules over death. Here is a glorious vision of our divine, risen Redeemer, who rules, who rules over all, 
this morning. Do we know him as our redeemer? Well, secondly here, I want us to see the death-defeating rule of the risen redeemer. We've considered uh, the divine identity of the, of the risen redeemer. Now let's see the, the death-defeating rule of the risen redeemer. Two things in this passage. We're told that the Lord Jesus, uh, the divine redeemer, uh, the crucified, risen, exalted king rules over. Two things the victorious Jesus is said to hold in his hands. Just think, you hold something in your hands and you've got rule, you've got control over it, haven't you? Uh, just think, we see that most clearly with the TV remote. You hold the TV remote in your hand, you've got control over what other people are watching, what volume they can watch it at. Uh, you have a cake in your hand, you've got control. Well, I'll be the one who's uh, eating it. I can see some people knocking at the person next to them uh, about the TV remote. What about the keys to a new car or a new house? I've got the keys to the house. I've got access. Power of access, power of use, power of control. I am the first and the last and the living one, says Jesus. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The, the risen Lord Jesus alone has those keys to death and hell. We don't have those keys, do we? But our society would love to have those keys to death, would love to have power and control over death. I read, I think it was just last week or the week before, of research that's been done into making skin cells look 30 years younger. I don't know if you saw that research. I don't know how far on in development it is. Who wouldn't want that to delay death Genetic engineering, transhumanism, a whole movement to modify humanity, to stave off death. But for all of the creams, for all of the tablets, for all of the injections and vaccines, we know, don't we, all too obviously, we do not hold the keys of death. We try to delay death, we try to avoid death, but still one out of one of us dies. If any of us were to get into a fight with death, we know that there could only ever be one winner. Bombs, guns, warheads, pandemics, uh, cancer, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, dementia. And not one of them increases the death rate. I quoted a few weeks back that quote from C.S. Lewis writing in 1939 at the beginning of World War II. There is no question of life or death for any of us. Only a question of, of this death or that, of a machine gun bullet now or, or of a cancer 40 years later. What does war do to death, asked Lewis at the outbreak of war. It certainly does not make it more frequent. A hundred percent of us die, and that percentage cannot be increased. All die. Sin's curse. Uh, that is the result, what we have earned from our rebellion against God. All die. But the risen Lord Jesus 
He alone holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. Oh, he is the living one who gives life to all, who knows the total number of our days before ever one of them is. But through his death and resurrection to life evermore, Jesus holds the keys of death. Not by avoiding death, but having smashed through death to the other side, having conquered death. Death lay dead behind the risen Lord Jesus. Look what I've got in my hands. I have the keys to. I have power over death itself. Keys to release you from death. In rising to new death-defeating life forever, Jesus has opened the back door out of death, opened the back door out of the grave, not just for himself, but for all who, like John, fell and fall at his feet. Oh, friend, this morning, let me ask you, do you know Jesus as the divine redeemer who through his death and resurrection not only holds uh, the days of your hand, your life in his hands, but rather also holds the keys of death, your death in his hands, who is able to give you life forevermore. However old you are this morning, there are some, uh, uh, some of us here who are younger, some of us who are older this morning. But however old we are, there is a day coming, isn't there, for every one of us when we will face our own death. Friend, let me say to you clearly this morning, your only hope on that day is to know this one who holds the keys of death in his hands and for him to know you. Today, just like John, he calls you to fall down in worship before him, that he may lay his gracious hand upon you and say in the face of death, fear not. But there's something else that the glorified, risen Lord Jesus, victorious over death, holds in his hands in, in these verses. I wonder whether you noticed it as we were reading through. Look at verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. Verse 20. For as the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There in his right hand, in his hand of power, in his hand of fellowship, the risen, glorious Lord Jesus Christ holds his people, holds his church and their leaders. Number seven in the Bible, it's a number of completeness, of wholeness, uh, this is his whole church of all times and places. The Lord Jesus holds his church in his hand. Uh, the, the, the risen Lord Jesus standing present in the midst of his church holds his church. Those for whom he's died, those for whom he's destroyed death, he holds us firmly in his hand. Would you live in the presence of of the glorious risen Lord Jesus. He is present working to bless. He is present working to bring comfort. 
He's present working to bring life. Where? Where is he doing that? In the midst of his church. As his people gather to worship him, just as we're doing this morning. Uh, we're told in verse 9, John writes to those who, who just like him, faced suffering, affliction for following the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as they patiently waited his return, uh, as they patiently awaited the, the resurrection of their own bodies. Possible that those who, whom John wrote to, uh, that uh, they lived certainly in fear of death, even dying as, as human torches on uh, the emperor's lawn outside of his palace. A hideous death. And this vision of the glorious redeemer, it is not simply a, a vision of the Lord Jesus in his divine majesty. No, no, this is a vision of our redeemer God as God for us. As our Redeemer, uh, the God who has shown himself in his Son to be God for his people. Our Redeemer, our prophet, our priest and king. He wears now the risen, exalted Lord Jesus, those priestly robes. For as the priest ministered day and night to, to tend the lamps in the Old Testament temple, so the risen Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives alive forevermore to do what? To ever make intercession for his blood-bought people. To offer up our prayers to God. He hears our prayers, those prayers that we offer this morning in our weakness, and he answers them. As we come, trusting ourselves to him, he says, fear not. Fear not, he says to you this morning. Can you feel the power of the, that word of Jesus? Fear not. Just imagine for a moment if you and I, if we were hunkering down in a, a ruin somewhere in Ukraine with bombs dropping all around us. Uh, you're there and I'm sitting next to you. And I said to you, fear not. Those are friendly words. Those are words of encouragement, aren't they? Words to try and bring comfort. But they've got no power in at all, have they? My fear not in those circumstances. I've got no power to stop the bombs dropping, to stop the threat of death. Or imagine this morning being on a hospital ward and, and I'm next to you in the bed next to you and the doctor comes round and he gives you uh, a, a, a prognosis of a, a terminal illness. And after the doctor's gone, I turn, next to, I turn to you and I say, fear not. And it, it's a word that's meant to be friendly and comfort, but, but, but no power in them at all, my words. No power to undo the disease, to help or to heal. But fear not here. Fear not, spoken by the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Spoken by the risen, conquering king. He who has power, not merely to delay death, but to push you straight through death to life everlasting. Oh, Jesus God for us, our priest, the one who hears our prayers, who says, fear not. White hair, 
eyes of flaming fire, feet of bronze. He rules as king, rules over all things, granted all authority in heaven and on earth, we read at the end of Matthew's gospel. But he rules in the midst of his church, rules for his church, rules all things for his church. As the only king of his church, he rules adorned with steadfast wisdom and, and justice to order all things for the eternal good of his people, for his church. Uh, the risen Christ, he rules the great shepherd of his sheep. He rules in the midst of his flock in order that no circumstance, no trial can come our way. My, my, my losing my job, my relationships breaking down with my children or my parents, my, uh, my husband or my wife, uh, my, my failure in this or that. None of those things, the tears and the pain, nothing can come my way. But that he, as the ruling one, has planned it in his sovereign wisdom and has brought it to me by his divine love. He rules so that one day every wrong will be righted. Alive forevermore, who will one day return again as king of kings to judge the world in righteousness, rules as our divine king and rules by his powerful word. For he is our divine prophet. His voice, like the roar of many waters. His mouth, from which comes a sharp two-edged sword. Our glorious Redeemer, present in the midst of his church, ruling by his powerful word. We worship the crucified, risen, exalted Lord Jesus. Alive forevermore. Not just a memory of one who lived a long time ago. We cannot see him this morning, can we? He's not physically, bodily present here in his resurrection body with, with us in church. But he is alive. He is physically, bodily present in heaven. And he makes himself known to his worshipping church through his word and his rule. How do we meet with this risen ruling Christ? By gathering in the midst of his people, attentive to his word, proclaimed and preached to teach and to correct and to reprove and encourage. If we would know this risen ruling redeemer, we must know him in his word. It's how we will know his rule in our lives and hearts. Oh, friends, you cannot know the risen ruling Lord Jesus this morning apart from knowing him in his word, meeting him in his word. Uh, the risen ruling Lord Jesus, the one who died and behold is alive forevermore. In his hands, the keys of death and hell as the conqueror over death. In his hands, the church for whom he died. Uh, the people who bow before him and listen attentively to his word. Those for whom he's broken death's hold to bring us through death. This morning, we proclaim Jesus wins.
The empty tomb means an occupied throne. Do we this morning, you and I, do we know this Lord Jesus? He calls each one of us this morning to share in his victory. Fear not, I am the first and last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Oh, to know this glorious rule of his now and await the day when this same Lord Jesus will come again in his awesome majesty with the same body with which he rose on that first resurrection morning to then call us from the grave ourselves, to then be clothed in immortality, alive with him forevermore.